All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 137. Today, Jason Lingren's with me, and we're going to be talking to one of our own, uh, Michelle, who's been a longtime member of Crow Triple Seven Radio. We thought it would be an interesting story because here is an individual that experienced two hurricanes, Katrina and Ike, uh, in a short period of time, was forced to evacuate both times and started to realize that there's a need for people to get back to nature and become self-sufficient, grow your own food, these kinds of ideas. So we're going to talk with Michelle about these things. For hour one, the conversation's a bit limited because weather modification is going to come into this heavily and what she experiences as she starts to try to grow her own food. Anyhow, we hope you'll all join us and show up for hour two over at Crow Triple Seven Radio for episode 137. Let's jump in with Jason and Michelle. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 137. I have Jason Lingren with me today, and we have one of our own, Michelle. And she's been a member and following us for some time with an interesting story. But Jason, what do we have here for the intro? Well, you did do one show this past week. Actually, I did a couple, um, I think, since last time. I did Sun and Family Moon United again. Um, They ask me on from time to time. If I have time, I always try to get over, like the grassroots movements. And uh, Travis, and shoot, Jason, I'm drawing a blank. What what is his channel again? The Plain Truth, and he's building up some episodes, and he's going to start releasing soon. Right, so um, we did all that. And have you been anywhere? Nope, just the one with Travis that I did, and that hasn't come out yet either. Okay, I guess that's uh, that's all we have for the intro. Are we ready to jump in here? Absolutely. You want to preface it all? So Michelle is a regular Crow Triple Seven listener, and she's living the natural life as much as she can. And she's had a lot of interesting experiences, and we want to talk about those and then get into what it's like trying to live off of the land. So Michelle, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. So let's start off with the little blurb you have at the beginning here that you and your husband were nomads and how you ended up in New Orleans. Yeah, we were just uh, both travelers even before we met, and uh, we met in Thailand and ended up going back to Alaska for a short time, and we were just trying to decide what to do. And he ended up going back training to be a helicopter pilot and got a job offshore in New Orleans. And that was right before Katrina, a week, 10 days before. And I had also gotten a job at a university there. And uh, so it was uh, all looking really good. Then came Katrina, and uh, we uh, evacuated. (laughs) That's where it all started, I guess. Well, you you were there as Katrina came. Can we talk about that for a minute? I mean, how did you get out of town well before the hurricane arrived, or did you see any of the aftermath? Yes, both. Um, I did evacuate early, and uh, that was totally on pressure from uh, my husband, who had to kind of package it for me and say, oh, you know, just go out and see the countryside. It'll be fun. You'll just explore the area. And I was like, oh, okay. Because when he said evacuate, I was like, this is ridiculous. And I was watching the news, and it didn't, no one seemed to be taking it seriously at all. A few people on the street were boarding up. But, and I didn't know anybody, and so, you know, when I talked to the neighbors, they were like, oh, no, we don't evacuate. They, they do this every few years. No one really evacuates. And so I was like, oh. And so I was trying to convince him, no, we don't need to evacuate. You know, we don't know. These people know. They're here. And, you know, little did they know. 
I want to ask, um, as you're getting into this, um, a lot of people, the, really the only experience they have with Katrina, and we've talked about weather manipulation and weather engineering, so we'll set that aside for the moment. Most people on TV saw people on their roofs, houses up to their eaves underwater, this kind of thing. From your direct experience, how bad was it? Well, I was watching the same news really as anyone else, and I was glued to the TV. In our, my, I was evacuated alone because Ken was at work, and I was glued to the TV and as much on the internet as I could, and the stories just flying. So it was really hard to gauge any good information. And I just kind of believed then what I was watching on TV. I didn't really doubt it until you started to see the same things repeated over and over. And then we couldn't get back. That was weird. One of the first weird things was that it looked like it wasn't that serious and everyone, we were just going to be able to go right back. I remember being a little bit disappointed, like, oh, I'm not going to have a week off because <laughs> we were just about to start the, the school year. And uh, so, yeah, then it was right at the last minute. It was a couple of days later that all of a sudden all this flooding started happening. And I didn't, well, sorry, the serious part of the flooding, I guess the, the levees were overtopped in some areas and there was a lot of water. I'm not saying nothing happened, but the story got weird from the beginning. So, Michelle, how, how long was it from the time that you evacuated until you were actually allowed to go back and you could see what had gone on? Well, it was, I think it was initially only a couple of weeks before you could at least go in. We, we were able to go in for just a few hours, and it was highly controlled, and they were doing it by zip code. So different people got in at different times just to be able to get some stuff and, and assess their damage. Uh, and it was such chaos because you were just waiting and waiting, and they would say, okay, this zip code couldn't go in. And then, so you would get all together and you'd get all your plans in the set in place, and then they would cancel it at the last minute. And so it was this craziness. And I, I think it was about two weeks later or three, maybe, that we got to go in just for the afternoon. And so, I mean, it was, it was awful. The, the city really was destroyed in so many places. Did any of the people uh, that you had met, you know, in your general neighborhood, did any of those people stay and try to weather it? You know, I don't remember talking to anyone who did. I read some stories. Um, there's a couple of really good books out there uh, about people who did, uh, and so I, I and what they went through. And apparently, it was really ugly. Um, but I don't remember personally talking to anyone because, like I said, I didn't know anyone. And my concern as soon as I got back was really about okay, when am I getting my job back, and then clean up and that sort of thing. How bad, when you got back uh, where you were living, was it completely trashed? It was trashed all around there, but uh, the, we were in an apartment that wasn't, uh, you know, just one of these houses that are very typical down there, uh, the, long, the long houses, I forget what they're called, and we had a floor there, so we were just renting. But we had very little damage uh, uh, in, in the area that we were in, and yet we still weren't allowed back for, it was like two months by the time we were allowed back in. When you said they, you know, they were stopping you and they were letting people in, are we talking about FEMA here, or did it seem to be local authorities? Who do you think was, was doing all that? I really can't say. I, 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 again, this was me just watching stuff on TV mostly because 
I didn't really know anyone. And we didn't end up going back. I didn't end up getting my job back. And so from what I understand, FEMA did very much take over the runnings of everything, and then that was a real goal. But I didn't necessarily get that information from people while I was there, things that I learned later. You know, most people who followed this closely um, got the impression that at some point somebody nefariously went in there and basically blew up or breached one of the levees. Do you think there's anything to that? Did you get any sense of that? I did, because the way that the news unfolded was so weird, how uh, it, you know, it wasn't that damage, much damage at the beginning. We were all going to be able to go back. You know, I, I thought everything was going to be fine. I was really ready to go back just that Monday. And then, uh, then they started talking about the flooding. And it does seem suspicious when you think about it, you know, just where the flooding was and that, you know, suddenly it's this major catastrophe. And I get, I mean, of course, the, at the time, the, the official stories did make sense to me. Yeah, I don't know this area. I don't know how levees work and all that. You just believe them. And then just slowly, just accumulation of evidence, you, you have to start to paint the, the real picture, which I think is very very possible that that's what happened. Now, Michelle, Katrina was all the way back in the mid-2000s. Were you aware of anything, generally speaking? Were you, uh, for lack of a better term, awake to things so that you were looking at things maybe differently than a lot of the folks around you might have been? Not in this area. I was, you know, a little bit into political uh, intrigue and conspiracy uh, since I was younger. And so I wasn't surprised by learning of these things, and I thought that from the beginning there must be corruption, you know. I thought it was more to do with, like, greed and ineptitude, kind of what the, um, the mainstream sells. So that's pretty much what I believe. I wasn't really talking to people then who would suggest the level of agenda back then. What about in the aftermath of that? Did you start really getting a clue, like, something's not right here? Yeah, that was after going back. And just, you just couldn't imagine the level of ineptitude. It was just too weird. It was over the top. Things were just not running well at all. It was a month before they were removing any amount of trash. So the trash was building up on the roads. And then, you know, all the teachers got fired. I think a good portion of the, the city workers. And then all of a sudden you see caravans, uh, literally caravans at you know, down the road, because I lived on a major road, barreling down the street full of foreign workers. Because supposedly, you know, there's no workers. When really everyone, it was dying to get back in and work on their houses, and they weren't allowed to. Or it was very restricted. You know, you were, there was a curfew the whole time, so people had to find a place to stay and travel in and out of the city for months. It was crazy. Now, I'm a little ashamed to admit this, but at the time, I was an Alex Jones listener, and... This is when a lot of people were calling in still at that time and saying that they there were military all over the place, that uh, one person saw FEMA people at the levees in certain areas, police looting, you know, police just taking advantage of their positions and just stealing. Lots of terrible things going on, uh, gun confiscations of people who shouldn't have had their guns confiscated, all that kind of thing. Did you witness any kind of weird tyranny going on like that? And not directly, but again, I did read what I would say are verifiable accounts of all, all what you're saying, especially the gun confiscation part and this 
really forcing people to leave whether or not they wanted to. To me, that in itself is tyranny. I don't, I don't need to know more than that to know that that's wrong. And that it was done under false pretenses to a large degree because there were huge areas of the city that were perfectly livable. Yet they're still forcing everybody out? Yeah, or, or yes, or making it really difficult for you to get back in, or in some cases, impossible. And when there was, it took so long to get services back, what were you going to do when you got there if there was no electricity and water? So before we leave the whole Katrina situation, looking back on all the things you know now, what's your assessment of all that you experienced and you saw and how things are now? I haven't been back there since. Um, but I do know it's one of these uh, resilient city experiment things now from the Rockefeller agendas. And the demographics have certainly changed. But again, I haven't been back. Uh, uh, what really turned me on to it was the book Disaster Capitalism. And that's when things started to click for me in a real way. And yeah, it was <laughs> from there, I guess, well, I hit the snooze button a few more times. <laughs> Let me jump in here. I'm actually going over your blog um, for everyone listening. It's called Ken Show Homestead. Were you aware at all of geoengineering or the idea of geoengineering? I know on your blog you talk about it a little bit, um, but back then, were you? Was it even on your radar at all? No, it really wasn't. I, I, you know, of course, every once in a while you hear rumors of oh they can steer a hurricane, but I didn't. I didn't register at all to me. I hadn't any clue. I've since then become very interested in geoengineering. It's one of my biggest interests, but back then, not at all. Right. So just for everyone listening, and I may put a little bit of this in the intro when I do it, um, we're talking to an individual here who went through Katrina. Basically, as the story unfolds here, you're going to see that they go down to the Gulf Coast in Texas, and another hurricane chases them away. At that point, uh, they go to start making and, you know, live in a place that's rural where they're starting to make their own food, thinking about getting off the grid, these types of ideas. And that's the interest in the story. You know, how many times do you hear people talking about, uh, I'm sick of this, I'm going to do something about it? Well, we're speaking with an individual here, Michelle, as someone who actually did take steps forward. And I think there will be interest as we get into the story. You know, a lot of people are interested in the idea of what they call preppers, um, where they're, they have no faith in, in the government or anything else, not... Not that they should, I guess, um, but that's where we're headed. Anyhow, go ahead, Jason. In your blurb here, you've written about being a member of the Peace Corps and with connections to FEMA, and I'd be really interested to hear more about that. Okay. I was in the Peace Corps in the Czech Republic, right on the Czech-German border. And uh, I also went back, and, and so when I, and I kept contact because I had a blog back then. I still had a blog at one of their websites. So through them, I wanted to do something. Uh, Peace Corps has something called Crisis Corps. I was a member of that. And, and so I got in contact with someone who I knew, knew someone high up at FEMA at that time. I really don't remember who it was, who I was in contact with, but they, they gave me a volunteer job or said that, you know, I could go and volunteer, uh, which was what I wanted to do. I wanted to do my part. I wanted to help. And uh, so then... At the very last minute, this was like probably, I want to say two weeks maybe went by, where it was back and forth, and okay, you need this, this, and this, and you know, here's how it's going to work, and all the logistics, and the night before I was supposed to go, uh, they canceled. And so I was trying to get to the bottom of it, like, why would they cancel at the very last minute? And 
So my contact said, oh, they just have too many volunteers and they don't know how to coordinate. And so this is just a lull. If you can wait around for another couple of weeks, I'm sure we can find you something else. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I can't wait around another couple of weeks and do nothing. But, you know, you couldn't get back in just as an average person. And I was certainly not a first responder. I don't have any of those kinds of skills. So I guess I just kind of wrote it off as, okay, well, I'm not a first responder and maybe, maybe it's legit. They said they were worried about locals going back in and helping in the communities uh, as FEMA volunteers because they were worried about their mental stability. I don't think that's the word they used, but that was what it boiled it down to. And then afterwards, when I got back in the city, I found myself trying to volunteer at all these places, these more bigger places, and I couldn't get in. I couldn't get anyone to pay any attention to me or call me back. And so I finally ended up volunteering once I got back all the way up in Lafayette at a homeless place Two months later, or it might have even been more than that. It might have been three months later. Anyway, it was just beyond ineptitude. It was just it seemed so clear something else was happening. So moving away from the whole New Orleans Katrina thing, what direction did you go next? Uh, well, we moved a couple of times and then ended up in a small town still in Louisiana. And uh, we were there for just like six months. And then we decided to go to Galveston. And I never wanted to go to Galveston. I always had reservations. And I don't know why now I know. Because six months after we got to Galveston was Hurricane Ike. Jeez. So there was a time span of three years. And so I'm listening on the news and they're saying, oh, 100-year hurricane. I'm like, How, what are the odds? That I go through two 100-year hurricanes in three years. So anyway, I ended up evacuating again. And, and Ken was working. So I, was, uh, I went out near a cousin on the East Coast. And I just did not want to deal with it. I was just decided I am not going to stick around. Because before, when they wouldn't let us into the city, I was hotel hopping because Ken's company put in a hotel for him. And so I got to stay there. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had anywhere to stay. There was, was all lodging was booked for such a long time. It was crazy. So anyway, I was lucky in that, in that case. So I uh, evacuated from Hurricane Ike. And then thought, well, we certainly, I'm not going back to the Gulf Coast. We couldn't get out of our apartment lease at that time, even though we couldn't get, even though we weren't allowed to live in it. And so then I had, we ended up going back uh, just to, to, to live out the lease. We had one month, I think, at that time. And uh, in the meantime, we had bought this property just as raw land. But it wasn't really suited for us to evacuate to. So... Uh, we, didn't, we weren't country people either, so it wouldn't even have occurred to us to just come live here full-time because I thought back then I would still get another you know, full-time teaching job and we would have this property as a long-term investment because by then we already didn't trust that the government would ever be able to do anything for anyone unless you're really the poorest of the poor. You cannot. I mean, if you're willing to go to a shelter you know, and live there for three months, then... You know, you could do that. But if you're not willing to do that, the government's not going to help you. It's a hell of a thing to consider so that you went through Katrina. Um, anyone can go online um, and get points of view that geoengineering and weather modification were directly related. There's been a lot of that basically after every big hurricane. So you move to the golf course, then Ike hits. So I got to ask, in a very short period of time, you've had to deal with two mega hurricanes uh, you've been evacuated twice, and so is this where you're starting to think, hey, maybe we should get out into some rural living and try to produce our own food, water, that kind of thing? Well, definitely one of the aha moments came after Katrina when I was 
looking at, at all the people who had no skills. And this is a culture in Louisiana of, you know, highly self-reliant people. That's the way it used to be. And suddenly, I mean, here you've got a, a park full of ducks that people might have eaten had they had the skills to do that. Or, you know, this kind of thing, we didn't, they, so many people became so quickly reliant on the government. And I thought that was just scary because being in the Peace Corps in a place where it was very self-reliant, I was always impressed by that. So that was already an aha moment of, okay, people are quickly losing really essential life skills. And that was part of the reason, too, we wanted to buy the land. That's a good point. Yeah, particularly down in the South, um, I think there absolutely is, and Jason may know something more about this, there was a sense of things not too, too long ago where there were a lot more people who could deal with living off the land and this kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, is it's at this point, even after the even the first time after Katrina, that you're starting to consider the idea of trying to become self-sufficient? Yes, but it was more on the practical side of things, more self-sufficient in a practical way because you can't rely on the government kind of thing. It was not so much now, well, yes, I guess that is also a kind of a philosophical approach. So, yes. Uh, and then uh, I kind of went through a dark period after Ike, and I still didn't put the geoengineering together. And I was, it was a kind of, I, was, I call it nihilism now. Just like, what is the point? Why are all these people doing this and going back to these places that are clearly dangerous and rebuilding their lives again and again and rebuilding these cities? And it just doesn't make any sense. And so I kind of went through that dark night of the soul kind of thing. And that's, I guess, what gave us, you know, really, okay, well, I'll just teach online. I won't get a, a regular teaching job. And we'll try the country for a year. And it, and it was uh, on the way back from the East Coast, really on the, on the drive. It was very much a moment of synchronicity. The adjoining property which had already had a little cottage on it that had been used as a, as a camp, uh, you know, a hunting place. He said he would sell it to us, and it had an acreage also attached to it. So oh, we were like, okay, let's try it. So we, we have the cabin that we had started to build, which was in the dry, but it didn't have electricity or water or anything, and then we got this adjoining part where we could at least have electricity and water. So you and your husband are basically city folk. And so this is a real step out, right? Um, you guys are going out into the country. You have no experience with farming, raising livestock or that type of food or getting your own water, any of these things. This is all brand new? Yes, uh, definitely all brand new for me. I was raised in the suburbs. Um, it, it Ken had a little bit more experience because he had hunted uh, in Alaska and his family was uh, already more self-reliant because his mother had gardened when he was a kid, and they had done some house flipping to make money back then, and so he had some skills in carpentry and stuff. And, you know, without that, we would, we would have been lost. I mean, I was just basically, you know, helping with the grunt work, the shoveling and <laughs> the clearing land and that kind of thing, and he had the carpentry skills to, to actually know what to do. I mean... It was still learning a lot from learning. He'd never built a cabin before or anything like that. But, yeah, just to say you do need some skills starting off because you would be completely lost. So as you set out in the country after having fled 
or been evacuated from two hurricanes that likely are directly related to weather manipulation, uh, what are the first things you do on this new piece of land that you have that start to head you towards some sort of self-sufficiency in terms of food and water and these types of things? Well, we, we our, the original goal was, you know, food, water, energy, like any person trying to get off the grid. And then also the prepping stuff. Um, you know, what if there is more like this? How long could we live, you know, and how long do we want to be able to be off grid if it ever came to that or shit hit the fan kind of thing? So we started really with the, with the food because once we got the, the cottage, we had the electric and the water. And so even to just do the gardening in this area, it's not known for gardening. It's, and we wanted an organic garden, and people at that time especially, you know, this is about eight years ago now, you, when I said organic out here, people really did not have a, any notion what I was talking about. And, you know, I talked to the neighbors, and they're like, well, what are you doing for your fruit trees? You know, when you see those little bugs, oh, we spray. Like the, the, the very first answer to everything, oh, yeah, we spray. And then they used the fertilizers, and I wanted to get away from all of that stuff. So it took a long time just to build the soil. And then we had to move the garden. So all of that is a lot of work, and all of it falls really most of it on Ken, who already has a full-time job. So he does, you have to be really industrious. And he's a very hard worker. Not that we don't have a lot of fun, too, but he is very industrious. So specifically, as you you know, you know you laid out the order in which you're going to go at this, you, you said food comes first, water comes second, and the idea of possibly um, generating your own energy somehow, getting away from the grid. So as you begin to do the gardening thing and learn how to go organic, what, what types of foods do you set out to produce at first? I was more uh, ambitious back then about what could grow here. And I, so I wanted to do both. I wanted to do what we know already grows here, even though I don't eat those foods. And I don't even like some of them. I've learned to like them over the years, like the heat-loving foods of the South, because we, we were, you know, Midwest people. So, you know, things like collards and okra and sweet potatoes and even cabbage. I, I didn't grow up on any of that stuff. We were kind of, you know, TV dinner family most of the time. So, yeah, it was a combination. So what, what might we be able to push and what will go here naturally just in case? And, and melons, things like that. Some things have gotten much harder over the years, and I don't know why I think it might have to do with the weather things that did very well, well, like almost no-brainers when we first got here, like melons and sweet potatoes, are, have gotten challenging for reasons that I'm not able to pinpoint. Is this in conjunction, did you put any fruit trees in, or was it primarily uh, more of a garden at first? Uh, no, yeah, we did fruit trees too. whole orchard full. Worked so hard on it, and we have like three trees left. And wow. I hear, I hear this a lot from Dane Wigington of Tree Failure. Now, We've had a lot of tree failure, even the native trees. So I don't doubt that. I'm sure in our case, though, we've made a lot of novice mistakes. So not saying that fruit trees don't grow around here. A lot of people do have fruit trees and nut trees. But they require a lot of attention uh, the first few years. And I think, you know, that was probably our bad. And then we did a lot of novice mistakes. Like one time, uh, Ken emptied the whole duck water because we have a little, a little tub for the ducks. And he emptied it right onto the figs and burnt the roots. <laughs> so we've lost all those figs and been replanting figs all the time. And it's always something. We're always trying something new. Some of it succeeds. 
lot of it doesn't, and we just keep trying. So are you getting a sense that it's the learning curve, or is there something going on? I mean, is it starting to be ideas like, what are they spraying over our heads? Is this getting into the soil? Um, I mean, is it, do you feel like the failures, I mean, the, to only walk away with three trees left after planting an orchard, is it mainly the learning curve, or is it something else going on in conjunction with that? I think in some cases it is more, it's not us. Like the, the failures with the melons, for example, year after year after year, when for the first years they, you could, they were growing like weeds all over the place. I do think there's something happening with the soil. I, I've just not experienced enough to know. I've only been gardening now eight years. You know, I wish I had grown up with this stuff because then I would know. And I can't really trust a lot of the people work that, that do garden around here. First of all, there's really not that many who do organic vegetable garden anymore. Uh, I hope it's coming back. But, uh, you know, they're back it's still in that mentality of using chemicals. So I, I'm not going to resort to that. <laughs> so I have to keep experimenting. But there is no doubt in my mind if we're not getting a big change in the soil, which I think we probably are because how could you not? But if we can't prove that and what it's caused by, there is no doubt that it's affecting the weather. And plants don't like these sudden weather changes. They don't like, you know, we had 55-degree drop in one day a uh, year before last or last year. I can't remember. I wrote it down, of course, and I wrote a blog post on it. I try to put this stuff up wherever I can, and I try to talk to the neighbors about it, but it, people are not noticing as they should. It's weird. It's denial and, and, and I don't know, wanting to put it, you know, once you notice it, then maybe you feel like you have to do something about it. I don't know. I, I got to ask, is, is the, is the uh, municipal water fluoridated in your area? No, it's not. And we have really good water in this area. Uh, we're definitely going to build a well, uh, drill for a well. This whole area was known for its water, which is something I was just uh, learning more about lately, and it's fascinating. And it's partly thanks to you guys for covering the, the Jirics, um because that really put uh, another interest in, well, obviously, the, you know, water is crucial in all of this, and I don't know enough about it. So anyway, I did call. There's the natural fluoride in the water here because we have high, high mineral content anyway, but I, as far as added fluoride, which is the industrial grade, whatever, no, they don't. Well, there's a big difference between sodium fluoride and calcium fluoride, too. Yeah, and this is what they say. I, I don't necessarily trust that the person I speak to on the phone would have any idea. No, they probably wouldn't. Now, in the area you're in, is it generally farmland? Like, is this what other people around you are doing? They are growing things professionally? It's mostly cattle, so it's more ranchy stuff, but we're in the woods. Uh, I hear East, East Texas is very woodsy. Uh, so it's very different from West Texas. And we're more like a Louisiana uh, climate, or we should be anyway. And there's not a lot of people. I mean, we do, there's one tiny little farmer's market that's getting started about 30 minutes from here. And, and it's, you know, the things that grow in the South, really, for a short period. And we're trying to garden all year, you know, eat fresh from the garden all year is our goal. And that's, I think, pretty unusual. We have frost here, so we have to have covered spaces. So we shade things in the summer, and we cover them in the winter <laughs> to try to extend the season all year. So at this point, are you eating fresh from the garden year-round? Yes. 
said, and that is a great pleasure. I love being able to go to the garden and, you know, pick my salad for the afternoon. And, yeah, we, we have great food here. It's marvelous. We both so, uh, love to cook. And so that's the, one of the, I would say, lifestyle-wise, that's the biggest perk is the beauty and the, just the natural beauty if you're someone who loves natural beauty and the health. Those two things, I think, would make it appealing to people. So I've got to ask, um, you know, I've been growing things my whole life, uh, having grown up in San Diego out in the East County there. Um, the soil's not great. It's basically a desert. Um, if water wasn't shipped in, it would basically be chaparral. But citrus and things like this, um, and the, the, most of the soil in many areas where people are living are poor and everybody's growing something. Uh, for the most part, back in the day, in the late 60s and stuff, when we were planting trees in our yard is when I was young, you put the citrus in the ground and you made sure it had water and tried to keep the gophers off it. And eventually you had a tree that was producing. So I've heard you mention figs and I understand why the duck water might've done that because it's known that, you know, bird poop is very hot is what they call it as use of fertilizer. So I get that that could have fried them, but what, what kind of trees in the orchard did you plant that didn't make it? We planted um, apples and peaches and pears. The pears do well. Those were the ones that survived. Plums, blackberries do well. Uh, we did, uh, and, and figs should do well. Uh, and that's another one that the first year we were here, there was the figs all over the place. And now it's not just us that are failing in, in the fruit trees, especially because I do have neighbors or friends, that, uh, contacts uh, that, you know, we talk about this kind of thing once in a while. Uh, I know a couple of people that I met through WestonAPrice.org, and so that's all about tr- traditional ways. And from speaking to them, they're also having trouble or had trouble for years before they found the right thing, especially with peaches. I don't know what's happening with peaches. Peaches are a bit more fragile, but I'm what I'm sensing is that you're in such a chill zone where you get frost that you're not going to do anything like certain kinds of citrus or avocado. But I, I've also got to ask, do you see worms when you dig up the ground there? Do you see ants living on the surface? Do you see insect life? Well, our problem out here is fire ants, and those are not fun. We get, we get invasive ants, and that's been a real problem to try to deal with organically. Um, and we just we tried to do earthworms, to cultivate earthworms, and it just gets too hot here in the summer. Um, but now that we've been building the soil up, Gradually, every year, I do see earthworms in the garden. We don't have the good kinds of ants that you're talking about. We have mean ants. (laughs) But we have definitely uh, amended the soil far greater than what it was initially. And maybe some of those crops, they don't want to be in good soil. That could be part of our problem. You know, the sweet potatoes maybe like poorer soil. Well, it's it's a big deal to to have established worms. one of the stories I like to tell is from Max Gerson from the Gerson Method. When he was young, as the story goes, um, chemical fertilizers were starting to catch on. And even as a young person, he noticed, because um, he played out in the gardens and stuff, when they started applying the chemical fertilizer, the, the worms left. And uh, he always remembered that. So, um, you know, we see all this spraying going on all the time. And it's gotten to a point where there are so many that understand it's going on. And there are so many still who are being conned 
by the contrail idea, and they haven't looked up that modern high-bypass jet engines aren't even really capable of making much of a contrail, uh, according to the engineers who build them. My point here is, is we're going to end up talking uh, about what you see, the spraying in your area, but uh, how is it possible that that volume of stuff is dumped into the air, that the rain and other things don't bring it down? Um, have you ever had the soil tested, just as an offhand question? I haven't had the soil tested because I don't necessarily trust the system enough to think that they're testing for the right things because, uh, you know, the only soil testing that I know around here isn't private. It's a state-run thing through uh. the university. So, uh, but I would be very open to testing the water. I would love to test the waters, test the soils. Uh, you know, I think you have to do it all over the expanse of the garden because even in just our garden, the soil is different you know, vastly different from different spots. And that's also been part of, you know, trying to work with what's there to get, you know, what we want growing and uh, more permaculture stuff. So we're not, uh, you know, doing crops every year that we have permanent stuff as well. And I think there's no doubt that this stuff is changing the soil. It has to. How could it not? I Since I started noticing the, per- the heavy spray, I've had nonstop allergies now for like three three years. I used to get seasonal allergies, and now I have nonstop allergies. Well, this might be a good place to put out a call to the followers uh, on Crow 777 Radio. If you're aware of any places that can be reached online where testing for soil or water can be done uh, that seem like legit non-governmental sources, um, we'd appreciate a post there. Great idea. What was that land used for before you got a hold of it, Michelle? Well, uh, most recently, it was used for peanut farming. There was cotton farming around here. Those are the two biggest crops around here. If you go back before that, the the native, what we call the native uh, settlers in these areas, the different Indian tribes, which there were a lot, uh, they grew all kinds of stuff. They they grew squashes. They grew corn. They had also some kinds of legumes that I don't recognize, but I read up on some of that stuff. I find it very interesting uh, what what originally brought people to settle in this area. And then one of the big ones that I just came across, which is not very well known around here at all, were the mineral spas and the mineral waters. So that, we, that used to actually be a commodity here in the 1850s. You mentioned two interesting things growing there, and it brings to mind um, the idea of the first peoples here, um, what's called the Native American Indians. They were so in tune with the land that when they grew things, and I forget exactly what the trifecta was, but it was corn, I believe it was squash, Maybe it was some kind of bean, I don't remember, but they would grow them all together uh, on little mounds. The reason being is they were aware of soil depletion. In other words, if you grow corn, it's going to pull certain things out of the ground, and growing these other two things in conjunction with it would prevent that depletion of the nutrients. And here where I live, it's a big farming community. We see crop rotation all the time. Um, But I would also suggest that the things that you're growing, it's not hard online to look up what nutrients that type of plant will pull, uh, which does clue you in. But I would further point out that if you do have decent records from what the so-called Native Americans were growing in your area, there is a lot of wisdom, or at least there is in my area, um, where you get to the point where you understand this is not about science. This is not about anything more than completely being tuned in to the natural world for 
people back then to understand that if I grow this, this, and this together, I'm not depleting the nutrition. But I would just put that on the table, Michelle. Yes, I totally agree. I wish it was easier to find that kind of information because it requires a lot of digging. Uh, we you know, obviously didn't have good records, and they weren't really keen on saving this wisdom. So it's really a, it's back to uh, you know, trying to find good information. I, I totally agree with you, and I think we can even intuitively learn some of these things if we can try to you know, just know the basics and then ourselves observe and, and tap in and it just makes changes based on those observations, I think is very powerful. I tried that, what you were talking about. I read that about the corn and the beans, uh, uh, the climbing beans. <laughs> uh, it didn't work for me. Uh, it turned into a big jungle. <laughs> but I guess that meant it worked so well that it turned into a big jungle. You couldn't even harvest anything because it was so crazy. Do you think the soil may have been damaged since you said that they did different kinds of farming before you got there throughout the 20th century with all the chemicals and all that? I guess, definitely, in those areas uh, where they did do a lot of it. I, at our particular plot of land, it was used uh, as hunting. This, a lot of this area was just all recreational. It was only short time settled, and I think people started to move away very quickly after that. So it is very possible. I don't know. I, I, I just don't think that they did that heavy of, of farming in this particular area. You know, it's crazy in San Diego. Um, I've always been growing something, and I was in in some areas where people were specifically growing things. And at the time, I don't know, fifteen years ago, there was a big push just for people in in Southern California to begin to produce organic. As a matter of fact, to bring up Gerson again, Charlotte Gerson, I would bump into down in Ocean Beach in San Diego, going to the Commonwealth farm fresh foods that everybody's a part of they all own shares and that's where charlotte gerson gets her stuff get back to the point there were i don't know oodles of people that i had talked to and was familiar with uh, that were trying to get their land uh, certified organic but so much damage had been done from roundup from pesticides from chemical um, nutrients that have been fed to one thing or another that they were told there's two ways to go either this land sits fallow and you grow these things for 30 years before you will ever be able to certify organic, or you get a backhoe in here and dig it out and replace it. And I just thought, if that doesn't really underscore the kind of damage that's being done in modern farming, as a matter of fact, as I sat down to get ready to do this show with you today, Michelle, Rose sent me a huge PDF on this very topic of what's happened to the soil um, a German report, and it does cover the United States. This was many years ago, over half a decade, and they said within the next 50 years, um, the amount of damage that's done to the American soils will be immeasurable. The reason I brought that up before is because I'm assuming, especially since you kept saying organic farming, anybody looking to get into this might actually be dealing with some serious issues of soil damage, and what are they going to do to try and repair the land that they have so that they can do true organic farming. Because by organic farming, I, I'm assuming people know, it means you don't use chemicals at all like the big agriculture businesses do. They spray everything. They God only knows what they're putting into the soil and all of that. Absolutely. I, that would be something now I would know more if you were going into an area where, that was, where there was heavy, heavy farming. That is for sure a huge concern. In this area, there's pine farming. So 
that's what I would be concerned about, is if you were buying a place that had, you wouldn't even think of it as a farm because they were growing pine trees. But that can also change the soil composition, whatever they're using on those pines. Uh, I, I don't know if they use a lot, but I think they do use some because those ants, the leaf cutter ants, they, they can easily destroy a small uh, pine field. So I'm sure they must use something on that. Well, pine, where pines grow historically, there's a lot of this going on in California, it acidifies the soil. Um, you'll notice that if you see a pine growing very rarely or there are weeds growing under the pine, but I, I wanted to add, oh yeah, this is this is what I wanted to add. There is a lot of knowledge that you can access now, and, and it's a little bit different for me because in San Diego, it has everything everywhere. It's just such kind of a everything city that it's it's not as big a deal to find things. But one thing I noticed over the last 10 years is worm farms were getting big. And I was amazed when I began to use worms and worm casting at the difference in the quality of the soil. But there's more. Um, I was growing bamboo um, and I was interested in the idea that bamboo could very quickly turn over raw sewage um, or even you could make like a urinal for people. And that's exactly one of the things bamboo would do very well to process very, very quickly. But part of the problem were white flies and these mealybugs that got on the bamboo. And it didn't take me long before I figured out that coffee grounds would solve the problem. It gave the bamboo the nitrogen it wanted, but I guess the alkaloids and other things from coffee grounds, it just stopped. Oh, scale was the other problem. The ants would bring scale, but the alkaloids in that coffee, and we used to pile it on 20, 30, 40 pounds. Part of the problem here is you're going around to places like Starbucks to get this. So if you're headed for organic, that's almost certainly not the way. It's not maybe directly like putting chemicals on a plant. But my point here is there absolutely is a knowledge base of these types of methods of growing. And I cannot stress worms. Big, big deal. Worm casting, same kind of thing. Um, using worm castings will cut down on a lot of the pests and these types of things. We're going to wrap up hour one of episode 137. When we come back, uh, we're going to be able to talk more freely, clearly in the, in the free speech zone. We'll be able to more directly address things like weather modification and all these types of ideas. But, you know, here we are in the modern era in the United States of America, where people have been evacuated from the places they lived. Clearly, there wasn't a lot of help coming from the powers that be. And we see a lot of people these days that are now interested in growing their own food, getting a water supply, getting back to the natural ways that will allow a human being to survive on their own if they have to. Anyhow, we hope to see you all over at Crow777Radio.com for Hour 2 in the Free Speech Zone. Cheers.